the narratives that you're taught. They, they live inside of your skin, not just in your mind. So how much does someone need to be radicalized in today's political climate? I found that a lot of these emotional reactions are based on stereotypes that are already quite mainstream in society. We just don't talk about them as much. Or they might not be explicit, but they're kind of um, fertile soil. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode two of Hate Speech Around the World, where we explore what hate speech is, how it is regulated, and how it impacts our social and political world. I'm Sandy Fuchs, an anthropologist of hate crimes in India, and in today's episode, we will learn how language shapes our emotional reactions and how online content shapes the way we think about different communities. We are here today with Jordan Etherington. Jordan, would you like to introduce yourself briefly? Hi, everyone. My name is Jordan Etherington. I'm a PhD candidate in the Cultural Studies Program at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario. I also have a master's in criminology from Ontario Tech. My current research project is applying affect theory to right-wing content on YouTube. And I, I will go into all the meanings of affect theory because it's it's really quite fascinating. We're really happy to have you. Maybe you can tell us what your research looks at in terms of the large world of hate speech and what some of the main ideas are, some of the main findings are that you have arrived at. So I, I could say that my main regional focus is online. Broadly speaking, you could say it's the English world. However, I, I still want to focus on Canada in this case because it's it's where I live and there are clear influences from these online hate speech influencers coming into and appearing in real so-called real life political discussions uh, that are happening in Canada. So my main concepts is, number one, the idea that right-wing ideology is generally not responsive to factual debunking so-called arguments. Despite the stereotype of that right-wing provocateur demanding, you know, debate me, debate me. Oh, we need to have a debate to really discuss these issues. That's a, These debates are generally ineffective for actually changing people's minds. They're instead best often used so as an expression of power and legitimization of their uh, extremist beliefs. Um, I, I think affect theory provides a helpful model seeing how right-wing rhetoric and propaganda is able to form strong emotional attachments in their audiences. That That's what I mean by affect theory. It's these emotional feelings that stick to people and are carried with them after seeing this this rhetoric so for example they they want to make it so that if you see a trans person you feel a certain way and and not just in your head in your mind but in your body okay so we're really we're not just looking at what people say and what effect that has in an immediately tangible way but we're looking mm. at how there's certain types of speech that might absolutely. create quite visceral reactions and people absolutely you have it bang on and it's it's especially important i think because this kind of emotional rhetoric and communication allows for hateful meanings to be communicated implicitly rather than explicitly which can get you in all kinds of trouble on mm. online platforms so this allows for pundits and influencers to spread hateful speech without actually running afoul of hate speech laws or moderation. So, for example, if you were on YouTube, 
you'd have a hard time saying, say that LGBTQ people are pedophiles. But you can keep bringing up the concept of groomers in a very close context with LGBTQ issues so that people sort of implicitly understand that people who are not straight are a threat to their children. And if somebody brings it up, you can say, hey, I never said that LGBTQ people are pedophiles. I just said it's an issue we need to pay attention to, for example. Okay, so it's a little bit like like you think about like the Pavlovian dog sort of thing, where you're almost conditioning yeah. people to react a certain way, even though you're not saying something explicitly, but you're giving almost signals that create yes. an outburst of emotion in a particular direction. Yeah, and, and this isn't to say that they have no agency. A lot of these issues, in fact, like as, as I've done the research more and more, I found that a lot of these emotional reactions are based on stereotypes that are already quite mainstream in society we just don't talk about them as much or they might not be explicit but they're kind of um, fertile soil you could say for these to grow up in i really like that idea of fertile soil a lot i think that's a very good concept i think one thing that we're learning from these different conversations around hate speech is that so much of it is harvesting already existing division or prejudices that already were there and just bringing them to fruition in an aggressive way Exactly. Like, I I found that a lot of times whenever a sort of hateful act or, you know, hate speech or like a controversy comes up or someone is found doing something, you know, obviously repulsive, the response from officials is generally there is no place for hate in Canada, for example. And and (laughs) as I've been looking, I've I've been saying, like, I don't know if that's true, and not in the sense that I think there should be, but in the sense that Uh, For example, if you're talking about white supremacy, when I grew up in Canada, I was taught to look at a basically unbroken line of wealthy white men as being the people who stewarded our great country to prosperity. And, you know, things were bad before, but now things are good. And we should just keep moving it towards that way and everything, you know, everything's working the way it is which creates a sort of sense that people who are criticizing it are either A, trying to just disrupt things, or B, they're they're just hysterical. Don't listen to them. They're just whining. This is interesting because this has come up in other conversations as well. The associations we have with certain identities become layered with particular emotions and ideas. So you hear the name of a particular social group, usually it's a minority group, you know, then the associations that evokes are with a particular negative emotion and also with a particular negative narrative. So when you are when you are encountering people who belong to that group, you are already operating with a whole layer of meanings that you may not be absolutely aware of. Yes, absolutely. You know, uh, I was once told uh, by someone that. They intellectually and consciously, they are pro-gay rights, gay marriage, everything. Uh, This is an example of an affective reaction. But that when he sees two men engage in kissing or some kind of acts of affection, it makes him feel nauseous in his stomach. And, And the way that he explains it is that he didn't see that as a value judgment. He found that feeling to be quite unwanted. He felt that it's like, I don't understand why I feel that way. Right, why I'm having this bodily physical reaction. 
And, and I think that that is because of these experiences and sort of the narratives that you're taught. They, they live inside of your skin, not just in your mind. That's really fascinating because that almost also shows that there's a way of actually infusing discrimination almost into subconscious reactions. Tell us how is that constituted? Because you look at the online world, how does that happen? Yes. In your research on YouTube, how do you pinpoint this process or how do you learn about this process? Well, I, of course, the first, you know, the most basic level I watch YouTube videos are online hate speech influencers. But, but what I'm really looking for is how they perform their actions. Uh, mostly, actually, I've been looking at how they perform masculinity because so much of these, this hate speech and these ideologies are based around sort of gender norms and these performances and reinforcement of masculinity. But uh, when I say masculinity, I mean sort of these social standards of how you have to be a man and what is acceptable to be a man. And and part of that is this idea that the white male masculine ideal must be kept sort of dominant. So, so it all sort of feeds into white supremacy, transphobia, homophobia, all those kinds of things. So I, I want, I look at honestly, like everything, their, their tone of voice, their posture, how they're dressed, how their setup is, the staging. How do you decide who to look at? Maybe we can start there. Who do you pick? Okay, so my one big number rule of thumb is they have to at least have 100,000 subscribers. I, so, you know, I, I've looked at Tucker Carlson, Jordan Peterson, uh, although they're not strictly speaking on YouTube, there a lot of clips and stuff is uploaded to YouTube by their channels. Ben Shapiro. Lately, I've been doing the Manosphere. The Manosphere is basically a group, a subculture on the internet who's all about how masculinity is super important and is under attack from feminists. So you have to make sure, you know, remain manly in the right way so that you can still kind of be dominant. It, there's a lot of grifters in that space who all want to sell you, you know, their courses on how to pick up women and be manly. So Andrew Tate has been a big one. He is what we call a manosphere influencer. And Andrew Tate is particularly popular. Honestly, I don't know why. <laughs> he comes off as absolutely repulsive, but he he speaks very confidently and how can I say that he, he doesn't have any sort of academic or ideological gloss to what he does. He is very much in it for making money and having sex and doing whatever he wants. And I guess there's something attractive to that, particularly if you're a teenager or younger, which is honestly a large part of his audience. So you, you have, you have someone like you have your manosphere's wide framework and you have these people who have over a hundred thousand followers big influencers like andrew tate and so yeah. you pull up their their youtube videos and then what do you do to look into all of the questions we've already touched on i i try to see how their arguments and and when i say arguments i don't just mean vocal arguments but how the let's say that the world that they're trying to portray through their actions and speech how it might affect someone emotionally 
and how those arguments could make sense to people in the right context. So, for example, like Andrew Tate's arguments about, say, when he says the matrix, whenever he gets into any trouble or any pushback or anything, might sound patently ridiculous to you or I. But to a 15-year-old teenager who is confused about the world and why things aren't turning out the way that, you know, you're sort of told things will be because, you know, increased job precarity, growing economic instability, growing gaps between rich and poor, et cetera, et cetera. The idea of this world being like this artificial framework being put to keep you down and that if you learn the rules for that framework, you can exploit them and then become rich and powerful yourself. So I, I want to watch it and see what messages and emotions they're trying to really put into people, especially through implicit means. Like, I've noticed that YouTube thumbnails are a really rich <laughs> thing to look at because they're made to really catch your attention and really like kind of rhyme you for a specific emotional feeling. Like, oh, there's something about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who's like, you know, the U.S. congresswoman who's known for, you know, her progressive ideology. And then whenever she's there, like, they'll just have a picture of her looking angry. So like, and then it'll, there'll be big text on it saying like, AOC added again in like big, bold letters with like bit and red text with a fire behind them to make it look like, oh, this person's crazy and angry and they're going to just try to set fire to everything. So actually, that's interesting. Let's talk about this anger and let's talk about how that maybe ties into some of these concepts that you're exploring, like affect theory. Yes. Um, what What is it that you have a YouTube video, it shows a feminist in the manosphere being angry and therefore that's obviously meant to evoke a negative emotion. What's the process that's being set in motion here in terms of the way how an audience starts to feel about certain groups of people? Mm. I think in, if we're going with that specific case, I think it's trying to associate feminism and progressive politics with this idea of it being uh, connected to irrationality, a sort of thoughtless emotion, impulsivity, and short-term thinking. Everything that sort of pushes against sort of the, the stereotypical masculine ideal, you know, big, you know, logical, strong, calm, stoic man who, who's in control of everything. Yeah. And and that is part of it. So they are trying to show AOC as being sort of the, the hysteric, you know, stereotypical hysterical woman. And what does that, I mean, this is obviously like an individual example, but if we're talking about yeah. the world of YouTube, we're looking at this in a systemic way, right? This isn't happening yes. once, it's happening over and over again. No, it, it does have, yeah. So then you will then react to, after enough exposure to this, you will generally react to, say, feminist or progressive talking points with this association with just hysterical over-emotionality. Like, these points that you're saying aren't real. You're just upset. You're just looking for something to complain about. You're nagging. Hmm. And... I guess the question is, in, in your work, and how yeah. does that tie into the idea of hate speech? We've talked 
a little bit at the start about this idea of planting the planting sure. seeds or the fertile soil. So, so how does that work? Uh, I've noticed an especially large amount of it with trans people, especially with the incredible uptick in anti-LGBT legislation in the U.S. And there's some influx of that, perhaps not at a legislative level yet, um, but generally in like political discussions among more conservative politicians. Um, the association of trans people and trans-related stimuli with emotions of disgust and anger and fear can lead, can make it much easier to dehumanize them. If in our example, if say like that person I was talking to who felt sick, you know, nauseous to his stomach when he saw uh, two men kissing, for example, like if that person was less self-aware, yeah. it's it would be all too easy to take that feeling and take it as an I, a sign that what they're doing is wrong and gross and should not be allowed because it's causing discomfort. Yeah. Whereas this person, you know, he was saying, like, I don't want to feel this way. I know it's ridiculous, but it's coming unbidden from me. And I think is the argument you would make that in your work that that you take the less self-aware person who is feeling that disgust that then lays the groundwork for people to act out against minorities. Yes, absolutely. It's very difficult to argue with nausea or to argue with your hair standing on end and you going into kind of like this fight or flight reaction when you see a gay pride parade because everything you've heard about this is that they are coming for your children right and you see this and you you feel afraid and when i say feel and i I think we can go into you know what an affective reaction actually is Mm -hmm. when i say you feel it you're not just experiencing the emotion you're experiencing it in your body. Your heart rate is going up. Your adrenaline is blood is pumping through your body. You're starting to breathe faster. Your face is reddening. All these things, all these physical reactions are taking place. So what's interesting about this is you can almost skip over the speech part of hate speech. You're priming a group of people on an emotional level to a point where you can almost go from that visceral emotional experience that people are having which is a negative one which is a hostile one in in relation yeah. to particular people and you go to can directly from that to hostile it becomes action. much easier yeah yeah and, and and i will say that these reactions are not natural reactions to mm-hmm. different people these reactions well the existence of say a surprise startle affective reaction is instinctive the placement what causes that reaction is socially constructed and Uh, i think that's such an important point because it's not hate speech initially it's fear speech right you're creating fear to the point where you feel like you have to defend yourself and then all hell breaks loose yeah it, it doesn't even have to be necessarily like a trans person it could be a trans flag in your neighborhood like i i remember after 9 11 right when mm. Islamophobia. There was a huge uptick in Islamophobia, and the idea it's like even in our media, like you'd see a film and like you'd see uh, a person in uh, uh, a robe 
Latino I had covering and it was like there'd be a slow motion of them looking at the camera just to like make in a way that makes it look really threatening like the movie mm. like even our mainstream media is trying to make it look like they're coming to get you <laughs> so when when you talk about the effect effective reaction is that what you're talking about the the visceral yes. reaction yes the visceral pre it I'm trying to think of how to put it. Here, here's, can I give kind of an anecdote? Sure. An analogy. So say you go outside and you see a grizzly bear, right? Okay. <laughs> You've heard, I'm sure everyone's heard of grizzly bears, right? Mm-hmm. You're walking outside and you see this grizzly bear. It's not attacking you, but you see it and you instantly are like in this fight or flight mode, right? You're like, yeah. oh crap, I got to get out of here. This is really scary. This is bad, Right. Right. So you're going to be, you know, you're going to have an adrenaline spike in your body. You're going to be looking for exits. You're going to crouch down because you're trying to make yourself look small. So you're ready for movement. Like these are very specific physical reactions and postures to go into. You're, you're doing all this. Hopefully you get away safely. But a human baby isn't born with knowledge of grizzly bears in their DNA. Right. You have to be taught grizzly bears are dangerous. Otherwise, what's to stop it from being like a big dog? So in other words, you're taught to have that reaction, even though that reaction happens before you even think about the fact that there is a bear. Your your body is already doing all this stuff, so you're ready to get out. And, and I think that's fascinating. So affect, if you had to define affect for our audience, it would be a subconscious reaction that's before an emotion Yes, depending on the theorist, generally emotion, the model I use is that emotion is affect when you consciously look at it. And it's sort of added to this conscious mental narrative. But the affective reaction comes before emotion. It is boom, like right when the light, the stimuli hits your eyes or hits your senses, your brain's already your body's already getting ready to react before your brain is like, okay, this is actually a bear and this is what we need to do. So it's a raw, unfiltered, subconscious thing rather than like the emotional level would be a level up where you then say, oh, I feel sad and I'm realizing that. Yeah. And obviously this has a very clear, you know, evolutionary advantage. If you see some dangerous animal, you don't want to have to spend time thinking of exactly what you're going to do before you're ready. So all of this is going on on YouTube. Let's talk about this. There must be sort of regulations around this. I mean, a lot of the things that we talk about on this podcast also have to do with regulation and law. So what what is it that YouTube does regulate and what's the problem with that in terms of the things that we've just been talking about? So I have the guidelines for YouTube here, which reads hate speech is not allowed on YouTube. We remove content promoting violence or hatred against individuals or groups based on any of the following attributes. So they have age, caste, disability, ethnicity, gender identity and expression, nationality, race, immigration status, religion, sex slash gender, sexual orientation, victims of a major violent event in their kin, and veteran status. So the issue is, as I see it, twofold. First of all, there is a fire hose of content on YouTube. There is 
more video there are more videos being put up than anyone could possibly look at there's an unimaginable amount of videos being put up all the time for youtube uh secondly this these are pretty broad uh, definitions like what said what constitutes promoting violence or hatred against individuals or groups is really based upon the discretion of the moderators that they send it to. And there's also tendencies for more popular uh, YouTube accounts to face less consequences than smaller YouTube accounts because the larger YouTube accounts get more advertising revenue. Uh, if you have the Daily Wire, which is run by Ben Shapiro, they're more hesitant to, say, ban Ben Shapiro than a channel with 100 subscribers because Ben Shapiro, first of all, has a lot more social capital. He gets a lot more viewership and thus more interested from advertisers. Uh, he also has access to other communication platforms where he can cause trouble for YouTube. You know, he can go over and talk about YouTube's big, you know, left-wing uh, bias because they're right. trying to stomp out his free speech. So so part of it obviously is is a bit of a, of a, of a commercial issue, right? It's a platform that mm -hmm. makes money based on views of videos and Obviously, even yeah. if something is offensive, if it's getting a lot of views, at the end of the day, it's good in terms of revenue for the platform. Yes, like there's a line they have to toe. But there's a, it's a pretty, you can do a lot within that line. But, and I think that's really interesting because that line actually seems to be quite far away from everything we've just talked about. So even mm -hmm. if you take, for example, you take the moderators, right? They obviously have a certain level of discretion. That's one issue, but what we're seeing is a situation where people are socially primed to respond in an implicit way where the yes. person online who's doing the video doesn't even have to say anything that then YouTube guidelines can come into and say, well, yes. this is promoting something. Precisely. Yeah. Ben Shapiro can't say the N-word on YouTube, let's say, but he can definitely talk about black urban crime. He can talk about crime statistics and how levels of drug use among certain populations. He can ask questions about Islam's ability to, you know, assimilate into Western society. I'm doing a lot of quotes, fingers here. <laughs> so then when he asked about that, he can say, I'm just asking questions or I'm just citing statistics. I'm not trying to say anything about Muslims or black people, I'm just trying to, I'm just asking questions or using publicly available information. And what's really fascinating about that, I think in the whole hate speech debate, people talk about dog whistles a lot. And I think yes. this is, for example, something that comes in once again with the example I know best in India, where you have some politicians who are expert at this and they won't say Muslims, they will say the people who say Abajan, which means the people who Abajan is a word for father, right? So it's kind of this yeah. like ever so elaborate way. But what we're seeing here is even almost a step beyond that, where like, yes, you have the, the dog whistles as well, but you also have almost like a whole environment of stand-in language. Oh, right? absolutely. You, yeah. You're not talking about gay people. You're talking about groomers. 
wink. Now right. I'm winking. <laughs> <laughs> but you also like you're talking about urban crime. You're not that's not referring to even a particular group. There's like another layer to this where you're then talking about yes. a phenomenon which has been layered onto the dog whistle, yes. which has been layered onto the community yeah. almost. Yes. W- within the context of American and because American media has such a huge footprint filters into other English-speaking and even non-English-speaking areas. The term urban crime is generally understood in the right context as referring to Black people because Black populations are associated with living in urban areas. It's a way to say it, to say hateful things in a socially deniable way. Yeah. So if somebody calls you on, you can say, well, I'm just talking about crime in the cities, even though it's like, you know. So I guess the question is then, as somebody who's worked on this and who spends a lot of time looking at the stuff on YouTube, like, is there something that YouTube could do better to regulate this stuff? Or is this really something that's completely almost beyond a regulatory framework? I don't think it's beyond a regulatory framework considering how quickly YouTube can clamp down on copyrighted music. <laughs> okay. Yes. You know, that seems to be able to get done really fast. Not that, But there are, of course, difficulties with this that I do think need to be considered. For example, I've used the term uh, groomers as sort of a dog whistle, like as an example of a dog whistle against LGBTQ people, right? Hmm. But say you were to make the term groomer a band word, let's say, well, grooming is an actual phenomenon in the sense that in the sense of the term being used to make abuse victims accept that abuse. It's a long term process used by abusers. And this is clearly an important concept to talk about. I am I want to emphasize not using it specifically to refer to LGBTQ people. But so basically the same word like the same word can have different uses in different contexts not all of which are kind of insidious yes so that's part of the insidious elements of it if these terms didn't also have other uses in other contexts they wouldn't be so effective at this implicit messaging so if you if you're thinking about these moderators that you've talked about what would somebody look out for would that be every moderator contextually looking at every video it would be incredibly difficult to do so, though, because you're you're having these people whose jobs are to look at basically unlimited amount numbers of hate speech and other inappropriate imagery. To try to teach them about the specific context these are taking place in would be difficult. But then again, I look at how they were able to work with COVID denialism. That that was able to go pretty quickly. How did how did they do it in that context? Like, what was sort of the strategy used there? Oh, I, I more mean that they were able to make it so that actually talking about the idea that COVID is fake would lead to moderation. But even that has difficulty because then it becomes difficult to talk about COVID denialism because it's hard to talk <laughs> about COVID denialism when criticizing it or, or even criticize COVID denialism without using saying COVID is fake because you want to describe what they're saying. You then can't talk about the phenomenon as well. Yes. Yeah. 
I'll be honest, this this is something I do not know what a solution is. That's fair uh-huh. enough. We can't expect our, our you know, the people we bring on here to have all of the answers. I know that there was a recent GLAD study on different social media platforms, which found that they have been seriously failing the LGBTQ plus communities. YouTube got a 45% out of 100 on the GLAD social media safety index score. So there, there is clearly work to be done. So there's YouTube guidelines and all of this. I mean, you're also a criminologist. So tell us a little bit how these guidelines would then potentially interact with any national legal frameworks. So the Canadian legal framework for hate speeches, I I was surprised by actually how minimal it is. There are only, in Canada, there are only three federal uh, hate crimes, which are public incitement of hatred willful promotion of hatred, and willful promotion of anti-Semitism. And all of those have very specific meanings, too. For example, public willful promotion of anti-Semitism, uh, by the text, actually mostly talks about Holocaust denial. Technically, doing something like spray-painting a swastika on a synagogue would not count as a violation of that federal law of willful promotion of anti-Semitism, because they're not denying or explicitly endorsing the Holocaust, for example. Instead, there's this idea of uh, an offense being defined as a hate-motivated crime, but that is at the description discretion of police who will then uh, say that, you know, um, label a, an offense to be hate-motivated, which judges can then use as a a sort of sentencing factor. The issue with this is that the guidelines around what constitutes a hate-motivated crime really are completely inconsistent from municipality to municipality. For example, in Toronto, which is one of Canada's biggest cities, to be considered a hate-motivated crime, police are directed to to define it as a criminal offense committed against a person or property that is based solely upon the victim's race, religion, nationality, ethnic origin, sexual orientation, gender, or disability. Right. Now, that's a very, very stringent definition. Very rarely is a are crimes done for one sole motivation. Say a white man and a black man get into an argument over money. And then the white man starts calling this guy, starts you know, saying racist things to the black man, and then beats him up. Now, clearly, there's a racial element here. He is uttering hate speech. But they could argue, well, they were fighting over money, though. That assault was not motivated solely by racial hatred. Um, right. Whereas, so it doesn't right. apply. Yes. Uh, whereas in Halifax, which is the capital of Nova Scotia, a maritime province, a hate crime is a criminal offense committed against a person or property, the motivation for which is based in whole or in part upon the victim's race, religion, nationality, ethnic origin, gender, disability, or sexual orientation. And those sound very similar, but that in whole or in part does a, is very significant. 
Because in that case, our hypothetical situation is clearly a hate crime because it was committed in part due to hatred. So a lot of different guidelines, which are also internally inconsistent, which makes it all very much more complicated. Now, if you look at the influencers that you look at, now their content on YouTube is subject to YouTube regulation. Yes. Is it also, this is, I guess, a legal technical question, is it also subject to regulation by Canadian authorities or is that completely separate jurisdiction? I I would say absolutely not. At, At least right now. I know that there is some, like the EU has some laws about that, but those seem to be mostly civil. For example, I've heard rumblings of like Germany wanting to take Twitter to court due to the increase in Nazi content yes. on Twitter yes. since Elon Musk has taken over. But no, the because it's set in the United States, like it's, it's going to use a U.S. framework. You can't generally expect an American company to abide by a different country's sort of legality, at, at least on a criminal level. So do tech companies have the almost sole power to regulate or not regulate hate speech online? I think that on an individual level, users who publish, who make illegal content online in like in their home can be prosecuted for it in their home country. So Mm -hmm. if a Canadian made a YouTube video promoting anti-Semitism that fit that legal definition, they could be prosecuted for it in Canada. But you would not be able to prosecute YouTube itself for hosting that content. Okay, so what do you think the social effect of all of this is? So we've talked about affect, we've talked about the production of these reactions and and bodily experiences, Mm -hmm. what that leads to and how unregulated it is, right? We're, We're talking about all of that. One of the things that you look at in your work is the concept of radicalization. First of all, how would you define radicalization and how does everything we've talked about feed into that concept? That's actually a question that I've grappled with a lot. And I'm glad you asked it because I'm finding it difficult to really call, say, American right-wing politics divided between far-right and regular right-wing politics. How can you say that somebody's being radicalized into extremist politics when some of those people are in their legit or within the system they're like legislative system right now they're members of congress or senators they were the president right <laughs> yes they were yeah and so i i'm frankly not sure how useful a term radicalization even is anymore i, I think the calls are coming from inside the house at this point mm. it's how radical is transphobia at this point let's say how 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 much does someone need to be radicalized in today's political climate to believe that that gay people and gay marriage is going to lead to societal degeneration, the breakdown of the family? So radicalization has basically become so normalized that it yes. becomes a bit of a hollow concept. Yeah, I would honestly say that. And I mean, I think that's very unfortunate, but this is what has happened since I started my research. I I think that it's also important to really look at the material outcomes of this because it's very easy to get caught up in all the abstract theory. But we we need to look at the, you know, dehumanization of non-normative people, let's say, marginalized groups. Radicalization shows in 
higher uh, rates of assault on marginalized groups. It shows in higher suicide rates for trans people. It, oh, a denial of life-saving medical treatments. That This is the effect. A, a, an attempt to push marginalized groups out of public life so that they can be uh, treated as non-persons. That must be crushed into sort of a normative shape, regardless of their desires or needs. I mean, it, it, it's an incredibly heartbreaking phrase, but it summarizes quite well what's behind a lot of these developments. Um, yes. I guess it does It does tie in with the last question I have for you today, which is, why is it important to talk about AS hate speech in a broad conceptual way and in all of its iterations and all of its forms of regulation today, right at this moment? I think it's important because I think hate speech is a grift. I think hate speech are the actions of scared, powerful people who know that they are the cause behind why things are so unbalanced and precarious and difficult nowadays, especially economically speaking. And they desperately need an other to fight against when in reality, if you are a poor white man, you have so much more in common with a poor trans woman than you will ever have with Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. Aside of the clear moral dimension of this, which is just a, a assaulting weak and marginalized people. Well, thank you very much for this incredibly productive conversation. We hope that this episode really encourages our listeners to think about hate speech in a much broader way, in not just mm -hmm. the words that are said, but also in, in the sense of the things that are unsaid, the silences that actually produce mm -hmm particular reactions what is missing from speech and what is that doing i think is a big question as well so thank you very much jordan and if you want to read some of jordan's work or you want to get in touch with him he's at trent university in peterborough um you can look me up there I, i'm not on much social media <laughs> which i guess Probably says something about it because i study it <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, so yeah, so feel free to get in touch if you want to learn more about Affect Theory. And thank you very much for being with us, Jordan. Oh, I, I loved it. Let's do it again sometime. And a big thank you to all of our listeners for being here with us today. I hope you will join us again next week when we meet Caitlin Carlson from the University of Seattle, who will talk to us about how we might have to rethink legal categories and legal strategies altogether to regulate hate speech online and offline.